0: Oh, well, good morning, Redemption Church, to everybody online, everybody out here on the lot. Man, I've got a pocket full of verses, and I'm not afraid to use them today. All right, so... But some of them are going to chap our hide a little bit. So I'm going to warn you in advance. It's going to be encouraging and it's going to be challenging all at the same time. But before we get into the message for the day, it is the second Sunday of the month. It's always when we do our financial update, and so I want to make sure we do that because again, we are working toward a building on this property where we're at right now. This will be parking. That facility will be built out, be bigger, do everything we want to do for not only Sunday mornings but our heart for the community. We have a heart for our city to do good in the city. And so this will be the toolbox by which we do that. So quick financial update for the month. Last month, the month of July, you gave to the building fund $12,000 and it was matched dollar for dollar, which means there was $24,000 given to the building fund. And then the general fund was another 61,000. That brings us up to 89,000 and change for the month of July. So you can cheer for that. Give that a big hand But here's the thing with that. I want to remind you that we have had a family come forward and offer to match dollar for dollar up to $750,000, all money given to the building fund between now and the end of the year. And let me tell you why this is important. Uh, Pastor Scott and myself, we actually met with our general contractor, our architect, our building kind of manager person, and uh, they put on the calendar that they believe we need to shoot aggressively for a February 2022 start date where we would cut ribbon, break ground, do things which means between now and then we need to really be committed to giving to that project because there's a lot of ground to cover, but they were saying that because there's a number of reasons, but one of the things that they're really trying to push for is the idea that we could be in our building in time for Christmas of next year. So that is going to be, but it's a big ask, it's a big shoot for, so I am calling on all of us. To look where we can give, to give aggressively to this, to see those dollars matched and everything else. That's sort of the big calling between now and the end of the year. And so calling on all of us to do that thing. But that's not the only calling uh, we're looking at. We're an entire series right now for the summer that we've entitled Called. And it's all about looking at the New Testament and how it has called us to be a unique type of people, to be distinct in the world. We are called to unique types of things that bring flourishing in the midst of decay. And so from that, we've noted that we were called from our sin. We were called to Christ. We were called for a purpose. And that purpose we learned first was a call to holiness. And that holiness at its core is about loving other people in a spirit of mercy and justness. That is just our call. From that, we also noted that we are called to freedom, and yet that call to freedom is not so we can use it on ourselves, but rather we're called to serve. And one of the greatest ways that we can then serve our world is what we learned last week that we can bless even in an environment that feels like we're cursed, that we're a blessing. When we bless others, we're a blessing when we endure well the hardship and people see that and they see something different and then they want to know what that's all about. And so we've looked at all of these sayings that we're called to, but today the spirit of this continues and it continues in this section in First Peter. That's where we were looking last week and we're back again in First Peter this week. And I love this particular short little letter of the New Testament Because what you see there is Peter writing to a community that is scattered, but they're not scared, right? They're under pressure, but they have this tenacious passion to make much of God in their circumstances. They're focused on doing good, even when things are bad, because they know that is their calling. In fact, they know this because Peter has told them as much in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, where he says, God has called you to do good. He says, that's what he's commissioned you for. That's why he's rescued your life. That is why he's made a difference in you. So you can go and do good things, not just be a good person, but do actual good things in this world. That is the message. Now, in a couple of minutes, we're going to look at the surrounding neighborhood that we find this little calling here. But before we do that, I want to go ahead and remind you of a couple of things. One is that we have an app, and on the app there are notes. And there are a lot of notes today, and there are a lot of verses today, but there's a reason for that, and we're going to get through it in a speedy way. But if you want to follow along with that, that is great. The other thing I want to do right now is I want to simply pray for us, get our hearts ready for today, because uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, there's some things you're really going to dig in this, and there's going to be some things that really bother you in this. And I think that's why God lovingly is always pushing and prodding and poking at us so that we grow more to be like him and less to be like what we're inclined to be like, which is sort of focused on ourselves. And so today is one of those days that even as I built the series together and the topics, I knew that the, the middle two would be the tough ones and the the two on the far ends would be the easier ones. Where right now we're in the middle of this. And so from that, I want to pray that we would just have our hearts ready and we'd be willing to respond to what God has us to do as far as our call to be good. So let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that you, you do not let us off the hook easily with what our calling is. You let us off the hook tremendously easy when it comes to our sin because you did it for us. It was hard for you so that our life with you could be easy as far as how to access it. But then from that, you call us to duplicate what it is you've done in this world and the spirit in which you did it. And so I pray that today we will learn from you in such a way that we want to pursue your good at whatever cost there is because you pursued our good at the greatest cost of all. So help us, teach us, and grow us, Jesus, in your good and perfect name. Amen. So... This morning, if you're taking notes, you've noticed that we are called the good, but the very first point in your notes is asking the question, what exactly is good? What is good? And I know that seems like a trivial question because you're like, man, we know what good is, but, but think about how much mileage that word gets just in our everyday lives. We throw it around in a common sort of way, right? We talk about good movies, good games, good food. We talk about things like good attitudes or good outlooks or good spirits. We say somebody's good egg. We say an athlete has good hands or good eye coordination. We talk about things being a good bet or something being good luck. We say weird things like good gracious, good grief, good golly. What's a golly? I don't even know what a golly is, but we want it to be good. Or are we say, say things that are just kind of super casual. And so with this word, there's all sorts of range, right? It might be used as lofty as describing God. He is a good God. Or it might be as lowly as describing awful coffee that's good to the last drop, right? All sorts of range. So if we're going to try to understand our good calling, get a good grip on our good calling, we want to make sure we understand what the Bible is talking about when it uses this word. Now, in the New Testament, there is a particular Greek word that is used, and it's actually a combination of two words, right? Agathos is the first, which means intrinsically good, deeply, profoundly good. And poieto is to do or to make something intrinsically good. And so when we come across this word in the New Testament, it dares us to investigate. It dares us to say, all right, go out of your way to figure out what is the most intrinsic deep good that you can find, and that sets your way. That's the thing that defines the good you're to do in the world. And the bonus for us is that it's stupid easy to find out the deepest intrinsic good in the entire New Testament, if not the entire Bible. We don't have to look far. All we have to do is turn to the Gospels and bam, you're slammed with intrinsic good. His name's Jesus. And he's intrinsically good. In fact, in John chapter 10, it says the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and to destroy, right? So that's verse 10. Jesus said, though, that his purpose is to give rich and satisfying life. He says from this, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. So here's what's convenient about this passage. You actually see intrinsic bad and intrinsic good side by side. The intrinsic bad is the enemy that comes to decay our lives, to rob our lives, to destroy what is good and beautiful and wholesome in the world. He wants to wreck everything with division and discord and you name it. That's what he's engaged in doing. That's the intrinsic bad. But Jesus is a good shepherd who's intrinsically good. And in his quest to be intrinsically good, he wants to bring rich and abundant life to the lives of people around him and in this world. And notice how he does that, how he achieves the intrinsic good personal sacrifice. Somehow this quest for intrinsic good is connected to personal sacrifice to produce that good in others. That's how we begin to kind of peer into what this is getting at. Maybe you say it differently. We talk about in our world the good life, and sometimes we see the good life as having wealth or having ease, fun, whatever it is. But for Jesus, the good life is about service. It's about sacrifice. It's about his giving away of life to others so that others can have life. He said, That's the real good that I get to do. That is the good job of a good shepherd to take care of sheep, right? That's the spirit of this idea of good. And so for us, it means we're using Jesus as the model then of how we define our quest to do and be good in this world, to live based on his example and his model. And here's the thing about this that I think is so cool. Um, God planned this for you, this quest to do good for you, and for you to do good, he planned that for you before you were ever even you, in essence. In Ephesians chapter 2, He says, God saved you by his grace in verse eight when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So we can't boast about any of it. But what he wants you to know is that you are his masterpiece. And he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things he planned for us long ago. So part of this is super cool. Like, you know what? You don't do good things to get rescued. No, he rescues you, but he rescues you so you can do good things. And he planned that way, way back in eternity past. So he's like, you're a masterpiece. I've made you a masterpiece. And in that, part of what that means to living out that masterpiece that you are is you do the things that he planned for you to do that are good things. Now, in this, there are two levels to that. One level is custom. In other words, you as an individual, he's got some stuff he wants you to do in this world. And so he's gifted you with certain things. He's impassioned you with certain things. He's wired you in certain ways. And so there's these things that you know that he's set in your heart or life that you feel led to do. That's the custom side. But there's also general things that we're all called to do collectively as a community to do good for the city, good in our world, things that we can all follow along with together, because these are generally the things that the Bible says are the good that we are meant to pursue. And while the word good is all smattered throughout the Bible, There's this section in Titus chapter three that I'm just gonna read through this morning and then highlight a couple of things that talk about the centrality of those good things, warn about the dangers of the bad things. And from that, we can get a sense again of bearing as far as what we're meant to do. And it's gonna start off in a way that instantly you'll feel like some tension, right? Some things you're gonna love, some things you're gonna be like, I don't know, but but Paul wants us to wrestle, because he wanted this community of Christians on the island of Crete to wrestle as well as far as what they're called to do in this world. So in Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he says, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers, that they should be obedient and ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone. They must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. He says, here's why you want to do this. Verse three, because once we too were foolish and disobedient. So he gives a contrast here, right? Do things differently, unlike the way you used to be before. He says we were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated one another. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed us away from our sins and gave us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit he generously poured out the spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our savior. Because of his grace, then he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Based on this, he says, it's a trustworthy saying. And I want you to insist on teaching these things to all who trust in God so that they will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Therefore, he says, do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigree, pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to the Jewish law. These things are useless and a waste of time. No, verse 14, our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. Now, I know a lot of that was like bible talk for a second, Right? But if we kind of zoom out a little bit and we get out of the trees and we begin to see the grove of chapter three of Titus, here's some things that we will notice automatically. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end. At the beginning, he talks about ready to do what is good. In the middle, he talks about devoting themselves to doing good from good teachings. And at the end, he talks about learning to do good. So beginning, middle, and end, he talks about good, good, and good. So between the bookends that drive to the center of the bullseye, all of it is about these things highlight what is good versus what is bad. And so look at what the bad list is. The old way of life, the not bringing good to the territory that you live in. What are the bad list of things? He said, don't resist government and its officers. Don't slander. Don't be a fool. Don't be disobedient. Don't be misled. Don't be ruled by your passions, your pleasures, your emotions. Don't be evil, envious, uh, involved in foolish discussions, involved in fights about, quote, obedience. Avoid quarreling. Don't be unproductive. Now, I'm sure some of that list, you go, that's right. Amen, I agree. And there's probably some parts of that list where you're looking and you're already building an argument why you don't believe that's accurate or true or right or you have to do that. And here's the painful truth when we try to build that argument. Uh, sometimes we just disagree with God. Sometimes we just think we're smarter than God and we can do our thing against his way. But, but Paul's trying to make the point of, no, you're called to do good, even if it's uncomfortable. So steer away from the bad, pursue the good. And notice the list of the bad things. It's like 14 different things there. And I think the list is long because if there's anything God knows is that we are awesome at figuring out new ways to do bad things and justify it. We're just awesome at that. And so he gives this long list. I'm sure Paul's like, man, and if I had more paper, I could keep writing. The list could certainly be longer. But here's the bonus. The list of doing good things is really short. It's super short. And I think God does that because he knows the short list is also really hard. And so he's like, I'm going to keep it short. I'm going to keep it simple because it's not going to be easy. There's just some basic things you need to fight for in doing good, like be gentle as opposed to hating and being envious and all those things. He says, show true humility to everyone. Remember love, kindness, and mercy is what saved you. Own the fact that generous grace is what actually gives confidence and meet the urgent needs of others. Here's what's cool about the good list. If you just focus on trying to do the good list, it automatically takes care of the bad list, right? And Paul talks about this elsewhere. He's like, you want to do yourself a favor? Instead of worrying about 613 laws, just do one, love your neighbors yourself, and you've handled the 613. He says that more than once. So good, so simple, so wise, but not always so easy. But if we distilled this down more what we're going to see is that the center of the good list isn't really good at the center of the good list is a god-centeredness right to be good is actually to be godly and to be godly is actually to be Christ like, and that takes us right back to the beginning when we learned that true intrinsic good is like just using Jesus as the guide for all things in life. If I face it like Jesus faced it, then I'm going to do good every time. If I do it like I want to face it and not like Jesus faced it, I'm probably going to slide into bad almost every time. So these are good reminders. And so we started with number one what the question was what is good? Well, here's the answer. Number two. To be good is to incarnate the type of goodness God has shown to you and you do that to the world around you. You incarnate the goodness that God has shown to you and you export that to the world around you. So maybe say it different. Whatever goodness you perceive God has done in your life, right? if you go, man, he's been so gracious, he's been so kind, I'm a mess up and he still took me as his kid. If that's what you perceive as the goodness of God toward you, all you need to do is take that same perspective and you're like, and I'm gonna do that in the lives of other people. To the degree that God has been good to me, I will be good to them. In the ways that God has been good to me, I will be good to them. Because again, go back to what Titus was saying, right? Paul writing to this young pastor, basically saying, you know what? Christ was God incarnate And in humility and gentleness, he met your most urgent need and he did it through love and kindness and mercy and generous grace. And so if he did it to you in appreciation and gratitude, we should do the same toward others. It's no wonder to me that Paul closes out the book of Titus and he says, may God's grace be with you all. I'm like, yeah, we need that grace let's be honest. This is a lofty order and we're going to fail in it. And sometimes we're going to fail unconsciously and sometimes we're going to be very conscious in the failure. It's why we ultimately need grace and why we want to show grace to others. But I want to go a step deeper now because I think it's easy to do good when it's convenient to do good. I think it's easy to do good toward people that you find to be generally good or at least not bad. But but the calling of the Bible is deeper. It's number three in your notes. The call to incarnate good is most needed when things are intrinsically bad. It's most needed, right? Where is good need to most be felt? In the bad things of life, with the bad people of life, in the bad conditions of life, that's where good needs to show up. And we live in a world held hostage by all sorts of bad things. And so we need to display God and we do that by displaying good, even in the face of people, events, or situations that are difficult. So back to the neighborhood of First Peter, where we saw that we are called to good. What is the context of Peter's Pete Carroll-like speech on, man, we're going to do good here? It starts in verse 18. He says, you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you to do, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel, I don't know about you, but if I'm a slave in the first century and I go to church and here comes Le- Peter's letter and they're reading it out loud, I feel the burr in my saddle right now. I feel the chap in my hide, right? What do you mean? You don't know my master. My master's a punk. He's a jerk. He's a greedy, just he's a thug. You don't get it. And yet Peter's saying, you know what? Fairness has nothing to do with doing the next right thing and kindness has nothing to do with whether you withhold or do good. He says, no, I want you to do good, whether somebody's caring or somebody's cruel. I go, well, why? Verse 19, for God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment right? The ultimate thing of why we do good in an unfair and bad world is because God says he's pleased when we respond that way. I didn't write it. I don't know if I even like it, but I agree that this is the way forward, right? It takes an ownership of his will, you go, know, some, for some reason, it's God's will that I would endure. And if I endure trusting him, I can endure, not spitefully, but I can endure graciously. And there's something crazy about people who endure graciously that that's where the gospel begins to make sense in the lives of critics and disbelievers. The proof is 2000 years of church history. When people endure graciously, unsafe people become safe people. Like they look at that and they go, man, that's proof. And so God knows what he's doing and Peter knows what he's writing. And so he tells him to do this. Now in verse 20, he says, of course, you get no credit for being patient. If you're beaten for doing something that's wrong, right? Like if you get busted for being dumb, that's on you. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. If you're doing the good of like Titus 3, you're responding in gracious, kind, compassionate, merciful ways. You're remembering the good that God has done to you and you're doing that good to other people. Like all of that is going to be what counts. That's the essence of incarnating the goodness of God. Thus, he says in verse 21, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. So that call to do good has suffering tucked into it. And there's this reality that the true proof we believe what the Bible says is that we will do good even if we suffer like the Bible warns. That's the proof. That we're not trying to get out of the suffering by obscuring what the Bible causes us to, but rather we go, man, I know there's a risk in this, but I know it's the thing that we do to do good. What this means is number four in your notes, true God-oriented good does the next right kingdom thing regardless of the cost. I'll say that again. True God-oriented good does the next kingdom right thing regardless of the cost. There's a phrase I say it all the time, right? Do the next right thing. And my thing in that is to say, you do what's right, not what's going to be expedient, not what's going to protect you. You do whatever is the next truly right thing. That's the general phrase. But here I added kingdom for a reason. And that is because when Jesus talks about good, sometimes it's upside down and backwards from the way we perceive good in our world, right? See, because his kingdom is upside down and backwards. The, the greatest is the least. The first is the last. You sort of win by losing. You save and rescue your life by giving your life away. So it's so backwards that when sometimes we hear this idea of doing the next right thing, we have to think as Jesus defines what is right, not as my culture, my inclinations, my own interests or wants define it, as Jesus defines what is right. That's the next right thing because you and I are ambassadors of the kingdom and when things are bad in heart that's the real proof of God's goodness and rightness in our lives. That's the essence of this whole thing that Peter's getting at. And then he says continuing in verse 21 for God called you to do good even if it means suffering just as Christ suffered for you for he is your example and you must hate that word You must follow in his steps. Well, great. What were the steps that we must follow in? Verse 22, he never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor did he threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Here's the thing about being called the good in a bad world. It's not convenient. It's not fun. It's not fair. It's not sensible. I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure it's sane. I'm really not even sure it's sane to do this. But but here's the trick. It's number five in your notes. Doing good is a test of honest belief, not determined morality. What I mean by this is we're doing this for one reason, not because it's The most sensible thing to do. We're doing it because God says, this is the thing I've put before you to test if you really believe what I say or not. That's how simple maybe this is. And that's hard to do, right? Because real good isn't fighting for good to be undone with bad. Real good is fighting to be good when you're tempted to use bad against bad. That's a difference. See, real good doesn't just claim to believe that the book is good. Real good actually trusts the book and God enough to do what the book says is good even when we feel the pressure of the bad. That's what we need to do and we do that no matter what. So here's an interesting personal test I took myself through this week. So I'll put you through it as well. My first question do you believe this book? I mean, authentically. Do you authentically believe this book? That's the first question. You just got to register that in your mind. And whatever your answer is, hey, I'm cool with that. Second question is, do you actually believe God and what he says in the context of this book? Right? That's your second question. Now, based on those two things, the following words I'm about to read, do you believe these are good or bad? Do you think these are good actions or do you think this is bad advice? It's Jesus. So it's not Paul, it's not Peter, it's not Moses, it's Jesus. And he says, you've heard the law that it says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So he says the Old Testament was all about Retaliation, Wrong for wrong. That's fair. You punch out my tooth, I punch out your tooth. You pluck out my eye, I pluck out your eye. You get the idea, right? Fighting back against the bad was good. But then Jesus, Pollyanna Christ rolls in with this phrase, but I say. So he says, Moses said, but now I say. And so at this point for me as a Bible reader, I'm like epic rap battle, Moses versus Jesus. This will be fun. He says in verse 39, but I say, do not resist an evil person. And we read this and we go, well, by don't resist, you mean don't suffer them or don't resist throat punching them or don't resist pistol whipping them, right? Like that's gotta be where you're going, Jesus. And he says, no, what I mean is if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. You're like, well, that kind of sucks. I don't know if I like that. So the question becomes, do you agree or disagree with Jesus? I mean, if you believe the book and you believe God, do you agree or disagree? He says in verse 40, if you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. I look at that and go, that's incredibly un-American and downright dumb. So do you agree or disagree with Jesus? If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two. I'm like, dude, we've got a Bill of Rights, we have a Third Amendment. I can tell a soldier to pound sand. I look at this and I go, well, I don't know. Do I agree or disagree with Jesus? He says, give to those who ask, and don't turn away those who want to borrow. Jesus, have you seen how many freeloaders and losers are in this world? They just want to take and not give. Are you kidding? Do you agree or disagree with Jesus? See, I ask this because at the bottom of Jesus's argument in Matthew and Luke, he says it this way. It's two ideas in harmony. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. See, at the core, he says, all that stuff I just told you is about love and doing good. Right? And so the thing that we are begged to work through is, do we agree or we disagree? Do we want to love and do good or do we want to do something other than that? Now, I want to be clear. Do these things look like smart moves? No, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you as a pastor. Everything Jesus said is absolute foolishness. It's total foolishness. But here's the thing. Paul said, and that's the way God likes to do stuff. Go read it in 1 Corinthians. The world says, that's foolish. And God says, right, I know, isn't that cool? It's so different. It's proof that we are different people with a different framework because we care about something different. And what do we care about? Verse 35 of Luke chapter six, he says, then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of God of the most high. Yeah, there's something about the foolishness of doing good while suffering. There's something about the foolishness of blessing, even when you're cursed, that God most uses. When I was kind of looking at my own life this week and kind of measuring against some of this stuff, here's what I really realized, and this one kind of stings, right? But, but, When we're unwilling to do these things, there's a few reasons why. Or when we're unwilling to say, yeah, I should embrace that, there's a few reasons why. One is that, frankly, we just don't agree with God. I said in a podcast recently, I disagreed with God and people were bothered by that. You know what sin is? I don't agree with God. Now, God's right and I'm wrong, but sometimes I don't agree. But that's because I'm wrong. He's right. But sometimes we don't embrace these things. We just, I disagree with God, Right. Or maybe we go, I just don't believe he's really gonna reward those things if I do those things. Or probably most true, it's this idea that I don't really believe that God's ways will change the world. I think we've got this one handled as humans. We've been doing it great for thousands of years. We'll get it covered. See, that's the thing I love about Jesus, all Right, Is the fact that he's trying to outline for us a way that seems very different, but it's the only thing that brings abundance And life, it's the only thing that brings flourishing in the midst of decay. Because number six in your notes, true good confronts all that is bad in the world by overcoming it with kingdom-minded good. Paul said, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I had a conversation with a friend here just recently, and he's like, come on, dude, you got to admit, it's just never going to get better. Right, The world is going to be sinful. Christians are going to be sinful. There's always going to be these divides, these fights, these everything else. It's never going to get better. And I said, I think you're right. I think until we decide we're going to do it God's way, we're going to embrace God's division, our d- definition of goodness, and we start to live in the definition that he set for us. I agree with you. It's probably going to continue to be chaotic, sporadic, divided, fractured, decaying. I agree. But I think this is why Jesus then calls us, commands us, compels us to embrace His way. And it's not going to be easy. It's why we need the grace to do it. And we're going to fail in it. But it needs to be the North Star that we kind of set our compass by. Let's go and pray together. Jesus, you sometimes saddle us with incredibly hard things. And I confess, I read your Bible a lot. And I would say there's a good chunk of the time I'm struggling with what you say. I'm struggling with what you ask. I want to come up with ways to redefine the obvious to fit my sensibilities, my sense of self-preservation or protectedness. And yet I also know that I won't change the world. Retaliation does not change the world, right? Siding up enemies against friends does not change the world. Being us humans is not going to fix everything. In fact, oftentimes it breaks it. But you you, you, you know the key, right? Gentleness, graciousness, compassion, love, mercy. To meet the urgent needs of others. To realize that grace is what unlocks true courage. May we embrace that with, with courage ourselves. And so Jesus, we seek you and need you and thank you. In your good name, amen.